Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The first speaker at this year's conference is Dr. Louise Raw. Dr. Raw is the author of Striking a Light about the groundbreaking 1888 strike by women matchmakers in Bow, East London. Dr. Raw is also a broadcaster who appears regularly on BBC Radio, a historian, public speaker and historical advisor, whose talk at the East End Conference about the Battle of Cable Street and the fight against fascism is entitled The East End Fights Back. I'm very good at destroying microphones. Can you hear me? Anyone who wants to. If you just want a little kip in the corner, that's fine as well. Thank you so much for inviting me. What a fantastic venue. To be honest, when they asked me, I just heard East End and Pub. And I said, yes. I didn't even know what I was supposed to be talking about. I have the merchandise with me. Striking a light. Makes ideal Christmas gift. Ideal gift for any occasion. So if you'd like a copy, see me afterwards. So, I presume my slideshow is... Oh, look at this. This is so well organised. You can tell I didn't do it. So I'm going to take us back, first of all, to the heart of the East End, about two miles from where we're sitting now, but in 1913. What I want to talk about is the real heart of the East End, which is the people, of course, and how they resisted and how they fought back against the terrible conditions that they were forced to live in. So, Old Ford Road, 1913, some knocks on the door of a particular cluster of houses (coughs) and a really strange request. People, these gentlemen at the door, are asking householders if they can borrow their upstairs rooms. Not for anything, you know, untoward or kinky, particularly. They want to surveil a house in Old Ford Road, number 28 to be precise. And they offer large sums of money for this. Now, these are really poor people, you know, 1913, East End. Extremely poor to the point of would be starving at times. So you'd think they would be tempted. Why do they want to do that? Why do they want to look at number 28? Because they want to keep an eye on a really hardened criminal who is somewhat on the run from police who has been arrested eight times in the last year, which is impressive. Be prepared, this is terrifying. Here's this criminal. (gasps) I know. Don't have nightmares. Sylvia Pankhurst. Um, Young woman then, all of a tiny little thing, all of about 30 in 1913. But she has been arrested consistently for her suffragetting over the last year. The suffragettes famously decided they were going to mount a campaign of civil disobedience on the grounds that asking nicely for the vote for about 200 years hadn't really got them very far and they'd somewhat lost patience. So even Sylvia, who was a a gentle soul, really, had got involved with this and with window smashing. And what I particularly like about her is her thoroughness. She decided if she was going to smash windows, no messing about, so she smashed the window of Bow Police Station. (laughs) And even the Bow Road coppers managed to spot her and, and to arrest her for that. So she was imprisoned repeatedly. You may know that the suffragettes also decided 
to go on hunger strike. The reason being, they wanted the right to be treated as political prisoners, which indeed, when you look at it, they should have been, but they weren't. They were treated as ordinary prisoners. Force feeding was horrendous. You may well have heard accounts, and Sylvia gives some very graphic accounts of what that was like, because it wasn't just the actual the, the horribleness of having a tube down your throat. It was the violence with which it was done. It was done with unnecessary violence because it was a punishment as well. These women, you know, how, who did they think they are? They should be nice little ladies at home by the fire, embroidering, not running around in the streets asking for their vote and smashing windows. So it was very punitive. It was a torture, really. And Sylvia describes being held down, five people holding you down on the bed, this awful steel gag they'd force into your mouth and turn the screw on it so that your jaws were forced agonisingly far apart. So that on its own would be horrific, wouldn't it? Your jaws are unnaturally far apart and, and almost dislocating. And then this tube forced into your stomach. A lot of violence with it. Women were punched, women were slapped, women were even sexually insulted in prison while this was being done affected their health, as you would imagine. Sylvia even refused water, and she said that this green scum used to form on her tongue, like almost a fungus on her tongue, and she would pass out. And of course, she wasn't force-fed once. It was several times a day over all these eight periods in prison, so it was a lot, dozens and dozens of times. She would leave prison on a stretcher, really, really sick. And the reason she was in and out of prison so often was an act called the Cat and Mouse Act. Well, nicknamed the Cat and Mouse Act. Because the government didn't really want suffragettes dying in prison. That was bad optics. That was a bit of a bad look. They weren't too fussed if suffragettes died. I mean, that was another issue altogether. Because they did regard them as terrorists. They really considered this a war against these terrible suffragettes. But dying in prison was another matter. So they would l release them when they were really on the point of death or extremely weak and ill. Let them go home and recover and then rearrest them. Sylvia did what no, none of the other Pankhursts, her middle class family, did, and that was she went to the East End. She deliberately went to the East End of London. Unusual for a middle class woman to do that, to be amongst the working classes who were so demonised. Oh my God, the working classes, imagine staying in one of their houses, how ghastly. But Sylvia was a proper socialist and much more sensible than that. She is the only Pankhurst you need, Sylvia. There's lots of Pankhursts, aren't there? It gets a bit confusing. There's all these women with the same surname. They look quite similar. It's a bit like the Kardashians. But the only Pankhurst you need is without the sex tapes, thank God. The only Pankhurst you need is Sylvia. She does everything. Her politics are just consistently amazing and brilliant. And she's consistently on the side of the poor and working class people of the East End. This is her at Old Ford Road, recovering from hunger strike and working, absolutely typical. I would have just been completely chilling, thinking I've done my bit, but no, she's working as well. And that is her in the bedroom of the Paynes little house on Old Ford Road. The Paynes were bootmakers, extremely poor, working day to day, had to stop work when she came to stay because of the noise, because she was resting upstairs and you couldn't be hammering away at boots downstairs when somebody was really ill and resting upstairs. The kindest people she'd ever met, she called them. They cooked for her, they cleaned for her, they looked after her. So she'd come to the East End because during the course of her activities and organising, East End women had said to her, look, you're always in trouble with the Rosas, love, aren't you? Come to us next time and we'll protect you. And she looked at these women and thought, 
Yeah, actually you will, because these were women you didn't mess with. She had the sense to go to the right people. And she was right, because back in Old Ford Road, when special branch were knocking on the doors, offering these huge sums of money to rent out the upstairs rooms, everyone told them to do one. Absolutely everyone, despite how poor they were, and they could have used that money. But this was our Sylvia. She looked after them, she was one of them, and they were going to look after her. So nobody took that offer. And in fact, when the police came and surrounded the house of the Paines to try to re-arrest her again, they were surrounded in their turn by a bunch of extremely tough East End housewives. Imagine rolling pins. If there weren't actual rolling pins, there figuratively were. Who sort of went, all right then, yeah, yeah, do you want some? The police decided they did not want some and backed away. They backed away and went to the pub and then scuttled back to the police station because of all these East End women going, oh yeah, just brilliant. I absolutely love that image. Jessie Payne, um, a really remarkable woman. She'd had an incredibly hard life. She had a daughter who had probably a learning disability, we would say now, and had died young. So she'd really been through it. And we know about her life because she was one of the East End women who went to talk to the Prime Minister in 1914 to tell them, to tell him what it was like, what it was really like to be a poor East End woman and why they should have the vote. And here's what she said. This is a really moving account. Once, when my girl was taken bad, she went into the Poplar Workhouse. Now, the workhouse absolutely dreaded by the poor. I thought I was compelled to let her go, so she thought she had to let her daughter go into the workhouse. When I got there the next morning, they had placed her in a padded room. I asked the doctor why. Why have you put her there? He told me I had no voice. I was not to ask why or wherefore. Only her father had the right to do so. And if my girl had not had a good father to look after her the same as her mother, I couldn't have got her out of the workhouse. We ought to have a voice in these different laws for women. We come from the East End and we have the voice of the people. They want us to ask you to give the vote for every woman over 21. I love that. We have the voice of the people. So she's gone from being so put down, really, and so unconfident that when they tell her they have to take her daughter away, probably her daughter's having fits or seizures, we don't know really, that's her behaviour, that's the reason she's taken to the workhouse. She thinks she has to do that, she's told you have to let us take your daughter. But she's soon wised up to that. Oh, I say it, come in. Um, and now she understands that what she does have, she may not have a vote, she may not have power, she may not have money, she has solidarity. The people of the East <coughs> have an incredible sense of solidarity. We have the voice of the people. So she's not afraid to harbour this enemy of the people, public enemy number one, Sylvia Pankhurst at all. And Eastern women didn't tend to be scared of the police, tended to be more the other way around. As we've heard, the women that I wrote about, the match women, when I was researching them, I found that there was a popular bit of East End entertainment on the dark nights in the East End. And most of the nights were dark because there was no street lighting and really badly lit streets and alleyways. So what they would do was perhaps from outside the pub, they'd watch the coppers walking their beat in the East End, always in twos because these dangerous East Enders. And they'd look at the route they went and they'd notice that in some cases they were walking over manholes, manhole covers, and they'd think, hmm, there wasn't a manhole cover there. 
That'd be awful, wouldn't it? Because the copper might... Oh, terrible. Wouldn't it be terrible, Elsie, um, if somebody was to remove that manhole cover? And unfortunately, mysteriously, that's exactly what happened. And there were accounts of police falling down these holes and then the lids being put back, which is good for safety, but a bit late, really, once the guy's down there. I mean, I think they got them out eventually. I don't think they're still down there. I don't think there are still skeletons down there, but, you know, they made their own fun. There wasn't much on television then. I, as a historian, I can categorically tell you that. Exactly. At least we've got EastEnders now. We didn't have that then. But these... I love the reality of the people of the East End. It's not to say that they were all these sort of, you know, saintly, solidarity, cool, blimey, amazing people. Of course, there were some shocking people amongst them. But not the cliches that we get. You know, they were people. They were very much like us. We don't really get that, though, do we? We get the image that they're either, particularly women, they're either victims or criminals or prostitutes, which I suppose is a bit of both, depending on your perspective. But it's not very nuanced. And what we get from Jessie Payne is this nuance. She is incredibly tough. She will defy the police. She will look after Sylvia Pankhurst to her last breath. But she's a loving, devastated, bereaved mother as well. She is capable of being many, many things. However, yes, there was a lot of violence in East End life. This is a scene of factory girls. And this is a form of industrial arbitration in the 1880s. It may look like a fist fight to you or I, but this was how women like the match women sorted out their difficulties. If you had a row with a girl at work, and generally they got on really well, the match women, they were famous for being really good mates and sticking up for each other. But, you know, occasionally there might be a row over a bloke or a hat or something important like that. And an account says a ring is formed and they fight like men. So they're not, there's none of this sort of slapping and hair pulling that you tend to see on the telly when women are fighting. It's proper. It's more like a, a duel, I suppose, is slightly over-egging it. But it's a quick fight to sort things out and then you go back to being friends. This is not ACAS or TUC approved methods of sorting out words, collect disputes. I'm not, you know, I'm not recommending it. But you can see why they did it. The streets were so violent. Life was so violent for women. You had to be able to fight. Just getting to work. They were constant threats of sexual assault. And it wasn't always by working class men. That's what tends to get portrayed. But for middle and upper class men, the East End was like a sort of sexual playground, a sweet shop. And they would go in. There was accounts of toffs, as they were called, trying to steal children. This was a fairly constant thing, a constant, fairly horrifying thing. So... I've met descendants, I've, it's been thrilling to meet descendants of the match women, and they've told me there's always someone in the family, Auntie Elsie or, you know, Auntie Viv, who was the best fighter in the family and you didn't mess with. One of my favourite stories um, came from a guy who was an East End taxi driver for many years and he talked about his, the daughter of his matchwoman, Granny, so his aunt. And he said, well, she was in the, give you an example, Louise, she was in the betting shop one day, ready to place her bet, queuing up, and behind her, a toff, a posh person, came in with a top hat, which was, you know, you would remark upon this because it wasn't very usual to see in an East End bookies. He came and stood behind her, and a group of local lads who were behind him thought, hmm, opportunity here for some hijinks. So they reach round the unfortunate of, pinch Aunt Elsie's bum. 
Our Elsie asks no questions, wheels round, fist first, and knocks this poor bloke out with one punch. So Toff, top hat rolling into the corner of the betting shop, bloke completely laid out. You know, they had to be tough women. But why do we get the wrong idea of them? I realised how wrong that the idea is that we get when I looked at the Match Women's Strike, because when I came to it, this is the Match Women's Strike Committee meeting during their strike in the East End to divide up strike funds. Annie Besant, who you may well have heard of, is in the pale dress at the Lepton. Next to her, Fabian Society friend Herb Burrows. Not, and I have been asked, a particularly her suit match woman. No, that is a bloke with a moustache. That is the only man. That's the token man, if you will, in the picture. But when I came to it as a trade unionist, that's when I first really started reading about the match women's strike, it was a love story, I think it's fair to say. It's a story that ordinary people really enjoy and there's plays and musicals written about it. But historians were really sniffy about it. Historians tend to be quite sniffy about a lot of things. But they regarded it as a very minor strike. And historians who wrote about it, and not all historians, even covering that exact period, even mention it at all. Even ones writing about strikes from the 1880s onwards. Talked about it as a, a strike of girls. You know, a small strike, an unimportant strike, a strike that didn't influence anybody. And I discovered it was incredibly important, hugely important. It's the start of the modern trade union movement. Everything that we know today, the Labour Party, comes out of that strike because it was the first time women who were called the casual poor, you know, the underclass, the most looked down on people, even of the East End, took matters into their own hands. They weren't allowed to join the trade union, so they thought, well, sod that, frankly. We're not going to wait for the boys in the trade unions with the top hats again to get round to us. We'll go on strike and we'll demand the right to form a union. And it's incredible, given exactly how put down they were. Nobody thought they were capable of that. Nobody thought they were capable of anything, really. Their, their um, reputation gets elided, in my view, with the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Little Match Girl, which was really popular at that time. So a lot of people would have grown up reading that. And we tend to get that view of these, oh, these poor little match girls who, bless their hearts, they weren't very bright. They didn't really know what they were doing. Some, some nice middle-class ladies and gentlemen came along and told them to go on strike. And they're like, oh, all right then, Mum, God bless you, whatever you say, Harry, that's what we're doing. Come on, Martha. Ridiculous when you look at who they really were, but it took me 20 years, um, believe it or not. I was very, very young. I know you're thinking that when I started primary school. To convince academics, particularly to convince historians, and particularly historians of the left, that this was possible, possible, that they could have gone on strike themselves on purpose, not by mistake. <clears throat> You'd think we would be over the prejudices that they faced, but I wonder if we are always. The strikes that were against them, the blots on their copybook, were threefold. Firstly, that they were working women, working class and working, working in factories. We've seen that image of factory girls. Factory girls, oh my God, you know. Civilization is coming to an end because of these factory girls. Not because women haven't always worked, by the way. Women have always had to work since records began. But it's another massa having poor women working in, you know, in rural society, working on farms, working in family groups, you know, with their husbands to keep an eye on them, like women need, um, or their fathers, working with their fathers. It doesn't look so much like work, that, does it? And they probably wouldn't have got wages. 
But then with industrialisation, oh my God, we've got these women on the streets of your respectable town and city, these loud, raucous women who do not know their place and use language, I'm afraid to say, terrible, terrible language. And they walk to work in these huge groups, so they're always hanging out in big groups, arm in arm, hundreds of them, match women, flooding down the Bow Road to work, singing musical songs, being really leery. You know, this is not how women how unlike the home life of our own dear queen this is not how women are supposed to be behaving so everyone decides at this point that a woman's place is in the home because they really would rather prefer that impossible for women of course to comply with that because you've got an average of 10 live births to your name as a Victorian woman you've got a lot of kids so you have to feed them somehow Secondly, they were Irish. I mean, come on, girls, really. If you're going to be working-class working women, that's bad enough. But being Irish as well is really taking the piss, frankly, as far as the Victorians are concerned. The Irish are black. You may not have known that. The Irish are black. This is something the Victorians completely made up. There was a lot of opium going around in those days, and I do wonder about the effects on that. But they just decided the Irish are a Negroid race and therefore inferior because according to the white men who wrote about this stuff, guess who was the only superior race? It was white men. It's just a coincidence. It's not that they're biased in any way. This is where eugenics starts, and we know where eugenics ends in the death camps in Nazi Germany. And it begins in the 1880s and in London. So, Irish working-class women and EastEnders, and this is absolutely appalling because you can just about be poor and respectable, just about, but not if you're from the East End. As somebody famously said, and I always quote this, if you have an EastEnder over your threshold, for goodness sake, reach for the bug powder and lock away the spoons. So, <laughs> they're thieves and they're, you know, flea-ridden. It's charming, isn't it? So I had to look at the real women and how politically astute they were, which I had a lot of, uh, a lot of pushback for suggesting that. But pr prior to the strike, they were incredibly politically involved. Gladstone statue on Bow Road by Bow Church. Notice the colour of the hand. The hand is red. His hands are still painted red today by people remembering the match women. And the councillor really pissed off about it, by the way. <laughs> they stopped cleaning it because it was so expensive. And somebody, I don't know who, are they in this room? Somebody keeps repainting it. And the reason being that the statue was put up by Bryant and May, who were liberals. They were really in with the liberal government and lots of liberal clergymen were shareholders in the company. And they put the statue up, talk about kissing up to the Prime Minister, my God, actually building a statue to him. But he's pointing to their factory as well, so my God, the arrogance is amazing. And to make matters worse, they made the women pay for the statue, thanks very much. So these women, who were earning starvation wages anyway, not enough to live on, were having deductions made for this statue. Bright and May could have afforded a hundred statues, and they're living on massive country estates by this time, the second generation of the Bryant family. They've made absolutely millions from underpaying their workers. Women not impressed, given half day off to go to the statue unveiling. They say, great. The foreman say, by the way, it's an unpaid half day off. They say, well, I probably couldn't print what they said in response to that. We don't want no holidays, they said, without their wages and probably a few expletives as well. But they did turn up, and I love this image. You have to imagine, <coughs> Brian... <laughs> I thought that was a person. Hello. <laughs> it is an exciting story. I know, it is. Um, so they, they turned up, 
And Brian and May would have been there, you know, with the great and good and the hats and the gowns and the speeches would have been made. And then at a certain point, the women rushed up to the statue, cut their hands, which must have been with hat pins, that would have been the only sharp implement they would have had on them, and dripped their blood on the statue and said, our blood paid for this. Which is a brilliant political gesture. Can you imagine the Bryant's faces? There they've got this gorgeous unveiling all worked out, completely wrecked, wrecked by the match women. This was years before the strike, so they were incredibly politically sussed. Another way in, I found, to understanding what they were like and their sisterhood and their solidarity was hats. Every good story from history should involve hats, if at all possible. This is after the strike, a little after the strike. But a photo given to me by a descendant of the match women in their hats. And look at those hats. They are absurd. I wish this was in colour. The birds that have died. There's entire flocks of poor birds. The RSPB would be horrified that have died for those hats. But they were so important to them because they were so looked down on as East End women. They were considered scum. They were considered, you know, no better than they ought to be. They were not considered ladies. They were just put down constantly. And the grandchildren I've talked to still feel the pain of that today, the way that their wonderful grandmothers were insulted and put down, EastEnders, EastEnders. But they decided that if they were going out for the night, which they couldn't often afford, they were going to look as amazing as they could. Couldn't afford their own hats. So what they did was set up a feather club. What is a feather club? It is a communal hat club. I think it's just brilliant. So you pay in a penny or whatever you can afford, and when there's enough money, you know, Mary goes down to the milliners and brings back a new hat to add to the collection. I like to imagine what would have gone on if you had a really hot date with a docker on a Saturday night, and you wanted the best hat, but, you know, Elsie wanted it as well because she had a date with a gas worker. What would happen? Would there be fistfights? I love to imagine. It must have been incredibly fraught being the woman in charge of buying new hats, must it? Because you'd have had someone saying, well, I want a really one of them new fashionable ones, and someone else saying, well, silver really suits me, so I want that. And it must have been just a nightmare. You must have required the diplomatic skills, mustn't you, of Solomon. Incredible. Also, there are a lot of Jewish women in that photograph. The woman that I spoke to was herself Jewish, and so was her grandmother. What's amazing about that is there were religious divisions in the workforce. The religious divisions outside the factory were so marked. There was tremendous, you know, if you were Jewish, you couldn't walk through a Protestant you were Catholic, you couldn't walk through. There was a lot of violence and, and trouble outside the factory, but the match women hung it together somehow. They were match women first. Their sense of identity was really important to them. And the hats were, it sounds ridiculous, but the hats were a big part of that. So when they went out of a night, they were going to look amazing. And the girls in service who would look down on them normally because they were factory girls wouldn't be able to because they'd have a bloody brilliant hat on their head. And they also liked to go to the music halls and learn the words of all the popular music hall songs. A magistrate gave me that bit of information. He was complaining about it because he was saying, I'm trying to go to sleep at night. I've got these bloody match women coming home on a bank holiday, singing Tarara Bumdie, knocked him in the old Kent Road. I'm trying to sleep here, for God's sake. But I thought, well, what does that mean? That would have meant you were very fashionable and up to the minute. It would have been like sort of the latest grime rap, she says, trying to sound contemporary and relevant. But that would have made them. This is the cool gang, basically. They're really up to the minute with fashions. So, you know, they're fighting back. They're really fighting back against their image and the way they're put down. 
So it's a shame that the, this is Annie Besant of the Fabian Society. It's a shame the way that history has warped them and what really happened. Their strike was tremendously important. In less than two weeks, they beat one of the country's biggest and most powerful employers with factories all over the country who they threatened to import workers in from, which the matchroom is sorted by marching to Parliament, meeting with MPs and saying, we don't think that's a really very good idea. And it was stopped. It's incredible, just absolutely incredible. A firm so connected with the government, such a big player in the economy. They, they exported as well. They were a huge player <coughs> abroad too. The government tailored its policies to Bryant and May to please them. That's how important they were. And yet they were beaten by what they themselves, the employers, called a rough set of girls. Rough set of girls and Irish, so what does history do with that? That's a bit of a challenging narrative to the idea of sort of poor, helpless, victim-y, East End waifs and strays. So what history has done has given that victory to Annie Besant, not a match woman and certainly never worked in a match factory, a middle class woman, journalist, activist, strike leader according to the plaque outside the factory now, which I, if I have to get that off the wall myself one of these days, I'm trying very hard. One day it'll be me a ladder and a chisel, but don't quote me on that. It says Annie Besant in huge letters and the match girl strike underneath in very small letters. Annie Besant, however, would have been horrified by that. She wasn't that sort of socialist. Very few people were that kind of socialist in those days. She was a, a Fabian socialist. She wanted to help the poor, but it was very much the poor pat on head a little bit. She definitely didn't want a load of Larry factory girls parading around the streets of Bow and going on strike. It's so weird that almost every history says Annie Besant led the strike. Being nosy, I set out to ha find out how she led the strike. Partly because I was a trade unionist, I liked a good strike, I still do. And I thought, well, this is amazing. If this woman from a completely different background has really swan down to a factory in Bow, and gone, I say, girls, um, you don't know me, but the Fabian Society have had a little vote. <laughs> and we've decided, for reasons best known to ourselves, really, no, 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 no real reason, that you're going on strike. Okay? And they've just gone, oh, bless you, ma'am, absolutely, ma'am, whatever. That was not very likely, was it? So I thought, well, something's missing here. Let's look at how she really did it. Looked at every account I could. Her diaries, George Bernard Shaw, who was her friend and possibly nudge, nudge, a very good friend, but obviously don't like to spread gossip, but what else can you do with it? Looked at everybody who was around at the time, looked at all the local papers, the national papers, every journal I could get my hands on. And there's nothing, but what there is, is Annie Besant basically saying, oh God, they've gone on strike. Oh shit. Well, she was probably too ladylike to say that. But she wasn't expecting and didn't want this. She certainly did get involved and wanted to make Bryant and May treat them better. But what she proposed was a sort of middle class to middle class, you know, we'll sit around the table with the employers and we'll tell them you've really got to be better to your workforce and that'll work marvellously. When they went on strike, um, she didn't even know about it for about three days. And I've been a bit of a half-hearted strike organiser at times, but I've always known <laughs> I was organising a strike. You generally do. It's kind of 101, is that you know when you've organised a strike. So they came to see her and she said, what the hell are you doing? And they said, well, we're the match women we've got on strike. And she said, don't do that. Basically, you should go back to work. And isn't it amazing that we've memorialised her as the leader of this strike? Just because, oh, well, at least she's middle class. It's unfortunate she's a woman, can't be helped. But at least, thank God, she's middle class. We can't have a bunch of 
you know, working class, uneducated women being able to organise a huge and important strike. That's, we don't like that at all. That is not what I call the David Starkey version of history. Um, David Starkey, bless him, bless him, um, the best paid historian in the country, as he always says. I'm not bitter. Um, But he's very much the great individual school of history, isn't he? Henry VIII, Henry VIII, I think he's also written about Henry VIII, Um, Henry VIII, possibly, and the Churchills. He does queens, he does kings and queens, and he said that the only power players in history that we need to look at are white men, white aristocratic or royal men, and to pretend anything else is to falsify, don't look at the working classes, nothing's happening down there, completely untrue completely untrue but that is his brand and he has made a lot of money off that he isn't going to say different just to please me but this twists history and it's so disempowering this version of history that we get as a result (coughs) of that when they went back to work in less than two weeks they formed they had the right to found the largest union of women and girls in the country at the time which is just incredible and that union survived. A lot of the unions formed in this period didn't, but it survived into the 1920s and was absorbed into the GMB union. Just incredible. I love to think of them streaming back to work with their best hats on and the foreman sort of... Because they also got the right to have a separate dining room, which was really important. You've probably heard of Fossy Jaw in relation to the match women's strike. What was particularly an unnecessarily... Um, tragic about this is that I found from the archives Brighton and May knew they knew exactly what Fossy Jaw was, that white phosphorus caused it, but it was this horrendous necrosis of the jawbone. They denied knowing anything about it, denied having cases in their factory. Publicly they knew. They knew from the 1850s because you can see from the records they kept in their archives. But there are also records going much further forward into history, 1900s even, of desperate families saying please pay something to so-and-so who's off work because of phosphorus necrosis and Brighton and May denying it and horrible solicitor's letters going back. So they got the right to a separate dining room. Why that was so important? You bring in a bit of bread from home, you put it on your workbench and the particles from the white phosphorus are in the air, obviously, aren't they, all the time. This horrendously toxic poison banned as a weapon of war now. That's how horrific it is, but fine for, you know, Eastern women to be breathing in, and men as well, who were the dippers. So the particles settle on your bread, you go to eat it by lunch break, you can imagine, can't you? You've got a deadly seasoning to your bread. You've probably got holes, um, missing teeth, so straight into the jaw, they poison straight into the jaw. It is horrendous, and this might put you off your lunch a bit, the pies. (laughs) I don't want to damage the sales of the pies. But your jawbone would start to decay while you were alive. So your skeleton is rotting from the inside out. And there are stories of match workers spitting out bits of bone the size of peas that are coming out of these abscesses. It's absolutely horrendous. And later factory inspectors find them living on the outskirts of towns and cities, which is particularly horrific. Why? Because the odour... You can imagine someone's decaying, basically. Even families who'd be living probably in one room couldn't stand to have sufferers in the same room. So they were sent, almost like lepers, sent to the outskirts of towns and cities. So just an incredible victory. They also got an increase in wages, an end to illegal fines that were being imposed on them, and a right to take their grievances over the head of the foreman right to the directors. That would have really pissed the foreman off. 
I can just imagine their faces when the girls walk back into work. It's a huge, huge triumph. It led to the dock strike of 1889, which is the big one that all trade unions learn about, the great dock strike. Who said so? The dockers. The dockers said so. Um, quite astonishing that historians have managed to ignore every dockers leader going, oh yeah, that was the match girls, yeah, because they went on strike and we thought, that's a good idea, that's amazing. Unskilled workers, ununionized workers, just like us. Irish, just like us. East End, just like us. I can see some things we have in common here. And they managed to unionise. So it's incredible that it's been given, the victory's been given firstly to Annie Besson, secondly to the Dockers. They didn't want it, neither, neither wanted it. So when I researched and fell in love with the match women and pursued them relentlessly through the pages of history for years, I knew that afterwards they must still have been politically involved. They must have been involved with the East London suffragettes, and indeed they were. Sylvia Pankhurst, branch of the suffragettes, but not, it wasn't just Sylvia Pankhurst. This was working class women. This was a working class movement. That's so important. And again, we just hear about Pankhursts, don't we, generally speaking. Um, the film Suffragette, a great film, but you get Mrs Pankhurst appearing on the balcony. Hello, sort of like, you know, clouds of angels and glory, wreathing her head and I'm all sort of oh, but there's sort of about one working class suffragette in that and all her mates go you shouldn't be doing that oh have I, have I broken something I generally do so again we take the victory away from the people who mattered that East London suffragettes were crucial absolutely crucial to the entire campaign I also thought they must have been involved with that other great working class East End tradition anti-fascism I thought they had to be. They were just the sort of women who would have understood the threat from racism and fascism. And only this summer, um, the great, great niece of one of the women I've written about, Mary Driscoll, she's right in the centre of the picture there, the tallest girl, with her sister, that's her sister Polly, who has her hand on her shoulder. All throughout the years, they stood like that, those two in photographs. They're incredibly close. So you've got pictures of them in their 60s, and they're always one's always got their arm around the other one. Mary Driscoll owned a shop, I knew that, and she used to rent out the back room for you know, events like this, really, but a lot, on a lot of a smaller scale to anybody who wanted it. There was only one person, um, her descendant told me this summer, she ever turned the room down to. And it was this posh bloke with black slipped back hair and a moustache called Oswald Mosley. He wanted the room for a black shirts meeting. She didn't like the look of him, thought he was a wrong one and turned him down. I was absolutely delighted to hear that. It's so important that we look at that bit of East End history too, and we so rarely do. We don't really talk about our great anti-fascist traditions in this country. We start to talk about Cable Street a bit, but for years, this, this went on for generations, for decades and decades, from the 1920s up until, well, to now. It's never stopped. We've always had resurgences of fascists. It's a bit like herpes, if you will. <laughs> bear with me. Bear with me. I don't speak from experience. It's a sort of nasty in, you know, infection that comes back every now and again. You have to you never quite get rid of it, but you have to treat it quite severely when it first rears its ugly head. Irish East End women, again, involved now. Lord Haw-Haw, William Joyce, you may have heard of him, famous tracer, radio broadcaster, Germany calling from uh, Germany, and eventually executed for that. He had a scar, you can see it, just about in that photograph. He always turns his face to the camera to look a bit butch because of his big scar on his face. He always said that was Jewish communists that gave him that scar. 
And that was what we believed until his ex-wife, they're quite a nasty divorce, always be careful about the ex-wife and what she knows, fellas, told a biographer, no, that was an Irish woman. That was an East End Irish woman. I'm smiling. I, sh- I don't condone, obviously, slashing people's faces. But the fact that, that, that he told this story that it was this big gang of Jewish communists and it was one Irish woman. I've spoken to people who know these things and that was a very specific type of a scar as well. It was called a big mouth and it meant that someone couldn't be trusted and possibly had connections to the secret services. We know now that indeed Lord Hawhorn did have connections to MI5. Women were involved as well at the Battle of Cable Street, one of my favourite days of East End history ever. This is Blanche Edwards being arrested at Cable Street. The police very much on the side of the British Union fascists, on the side of Moses' men, and wanting to let them march, but met with anything between... We don't know the exact numbers because there are crazy estimates from 20,000 to 300,000. A lot. Having looked at the photographs, I can categorically say a bloody great whack of people turned up in the East End that day. And it's this time of year, of course, it's 4th of October, to stop Mosley and the fascists marching through the East End, which they particularly wanted to do to intimidate the Jewish communities of the East End. And I've talked to a wonderful woman who I absolutely fan-worship to an embarrassing degree called B.C. Orwell, 102, still alive, still living in the East End. And she was there. And she said that before Cable Street, because it wasn't just this one event, it was constant, constant fascists on street corners, very visible, starting to wear the black shirt uniform, really menacing for years before this. And she said to me, well, I remember, yes, they'd be on street corners in Bethnal Green, and I would walk past, and, you know, I looked Jewish, and they would call out insults to me, and I said, oh, that must have been terrifying. You were only 15, Beatty. That must have been awful. What on earth did you do? Did you sort of run, or were you scared? And she said, well, I'm sorry to say, Louise, I'm afraid I shouted at them. I said, did you? My God, Beatty, what did you shout at the Nazis, the fascists? And the brilliant thing about this is I didn't have flat, and she waited until her young daughter, June, who's only about 78, <laughs> had gone out of the room to make the tea. And she said, I'm very sorry, but I'm afraid I shouted fascist bastards. <laughs> Fantastic. So there was always this resistance, and it came from the people of the East End, and it came from the women of the East End too. Mostly men at Cable Street, but there were some very crucial women playing a part, including Blanche Edwards. Women from tenements could see what was going on down below and they could see the police were particularly attacking women, really vicious towards women protesters. This happened with the suffragettes too. Suffragettes were actually sexually assaulted by police as well as anti-suffragette groups of men in the East End. They had their breasts punched, attacked, really focused, really sexual. The focus on, again, it's like the force feeding. This is not what ladies are supposed to be doing and we're going to let you know it. East End housewives, not impressed by what they see. So they're looking down from their tenements and they get their slot buckets and they get their commodes and they chuck them out the window on the police to the extent the police leg it and hide in some sheds so the women come down from their tenements and chase the police out of their sheds. And the poli- I love this image of the women in their aprons and curls, probably. And the police legging it again, as they did with Sylvia Pankhurst, back to the police station. One of my favourite stories, though, is a romantic story involving love and a lamppost from Cable Street. Charlie Goodman was 21. He shinned up a lamppost 
because it gave them a view because obviously it's such a tightly packed crowd, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. You can't see what's going on ahead. They can't see, are they winning? Are they losing? Are the fascists marching? Have they gone home? We don't know at this point. He climbs a lamppost and he says, right, come on, everyone, forward. Don't be yellow bellies. Forward, forward. We're winning. He can see that the fascists are unable to march and they're being driven back. The police pull him down from the lamppost and beat seven shades of Saturday out of him, quite frankly. But years later, four years after this, a young girl who was there, um, Joyce Rosenthal, young Jewish woman, 12 years old. There were very young girls and women there, often against, uh, with the opposition of their very orthodox Jewish fathers who don't want you going out and they'd sneak out. Anyway, she was chatting to the guy in the East End and she thought he looked familiar and she said, here, were you that nutter up the lamppost at Cable Street? And he said, yeah, I was actually. And of course, she knew from that that he was exactly her type. And she married him. <laughs> Wonderfully, on, on the Twitter, on the social media, I've just located her family. And I spoke yesterday to the daughter of Joyce and of Charlie, who said that they were a marvellous couple, long dead, obviously. But I wanted to tell you um, that Charlie also fought in the Spanish Civil War. He was a lifelong trade unionist and anti-fascist. And I also, one of the match women who I've written about, I found a descendant after I actually wrote my book. There were interviews in my book, but this was afterwards. And she also had the son of this match woman, I think it was her great-great-grandmother, was also at Cable Street. So here are these traditions of community self-defence, really, carrying on through the ages. Alice Hitchin, an EastEnder who was there, tells us a bit about the day. They shall not pass was on everybody's lips. The sheer scale of numbers meant the fascists couldn't get through. Eventually, after hours, and they were there for hours, the word went round, the fascists had been turned back. And Mosey was just told, look, mate, go home. Basically, they crept away. Everyone was cheering, dancing and singing and throwing their arms round one another where I was. And she speaks about today as well and said, I think it's essential to fight. You've got to stand up to them. You've got to be prepared to stop them from marching. When EastEnders came back from World War II, though, thinking that that was won and done, and we'd seen the results of fascism, we weren't going to do that again, they found that, in fact, Mosley was back, and that fascists were again marching through their streets. And there's an account of um, someone literally coming back from war. His parents thrilled that he's back, hugging him, kissing him, but he can sense there's some reserve, there's something that they're not telling him. And eventually his dad says, I'm sorry, son, but Mosley and the fascists are walking again and marching down these streets. So they decided they weren't having that, and the 43 group very much took matters into their own hands. I think it's safe to say they confronted fascists on the street and drove them back. They did actually break them within a number of years. But they also had women undercover in fascist groups. Doris Kay was a Jewish woman who was undercover in the British Union fascists. Imagine that. She knew what had happened in the concentration camps. They were getting accounts at this stage. And people were really destroyed by that, actually. People in the forces who felt we should have had airstrikes, we should have taken those camps out. It was horrendous and devastating, particularly if you were Jewish. But she had to go undercover and sit there and listen to these people talking vile anti-Semitism and to join in. And there's an amazing account um, in the book, The 43 Group, by Morris Beckman, highly recommended, of her coming home and throwing up. So horrific what she's had to do and what she's had to go through that it makes her physically sick. 
but fascism is very much back. Um, I discovered that a little over a year ago when I was talking about Cable Street at a solidarity event for a bookshop called Bookmarks, which got attacked by fascists. And there I was, gaily saying, well, we're, you know, we're ready to fight the fascists again. And I walked outside and there were some fascists. So that was fun. So we had a little exchange of views. Um, we couldn't find much common cause, I have to say. A free and frank exchange of views, I think it's fair to say. And then a few of us um, escorted them away, gently, um, from the premises. So I've been sort of on their list somewhat ever since then, which is quite extraordinary to think that a historian and a mum, I'm not exactly a ninja, am I, could be targeted by fascists. But they are... They do not like anyone who gives a different version of history. History is a weapon. It's very political. It's very empowering. They do not like this version of history one little bit. So I guess it's unusual in a historical talk to talk about today and what we need to do today. But it is absolutely vital for all of us who love Eastland history to realise that these people are back on our streets, unfortunately. They're saying exactly the same things they said then. You know, they tend to attack Muslims publicly, but if you look at the chat groups, all the old anti-Semitic tropes are there. So I think those of us who love history have to make sure that it isn't repeated. So I would urge everyone in whatever way they can to get involved with demonstrations for groups like Unite Against Fascism and Stand Up to Racism, so that someone in 83 years stands here and says, what a good job we did fighting back the fascists in 2019, just like Blanche and her sisters and friends. Thank you. It's going to work. Let me get out of your way. Yeah, of course it is. Yes, it is. I have faith in you. Fantastic, Louise. Thank you so much for that. That's Thank a, you. That's a great talk to open up the conference. Thank you. Uh, that was amazing. Um, I'm going to go to some questions in a second. Yes. Um, I will say, though, obviously, times have changed. Um, uh, equality is 100% now. Um, <laughs> <everyone's very laughs> that's true. That's true. There's no uh, poverty, thank goodness. That's all been eradicated. We're safeguarded by both the President <laughs> and the Prime Minister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've never felt safer. I don't know about you guys. patriarchy is done. Everyone yeah, thank that. God for that. <laughs> um, what really strikes me about that talk is, as, as you came to at the end, um, that battle started so long ago, mm. and we're still... Mm. We're still undergoing it now, um, so. which I'm just frightening at the same point. And, and obviously there's the human element of it too, mm. where you know you think you know you think oh just robust factory girls mm. knocking seven bells out of mm. each other in a yard, which is mm. by the way how I'm going to start ending mm. my own arguments with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also going to start climbing up lampposts as well outside. <laughs> Highly <laughs> recommended. That's clearly why I've been going wrong. Um, does anyone have any questions for these? Yes, Drew. Yes, thanks. Um, uh, that was. I really, really enjoyed that, um, and um, and I, I mean, there's probably quite a lot of things I could say, and it's very difficult to find as a, as a, as a historian as well to try and think of a, a question that's sensible and we tend to grant. Doesn't have to be sensible. Well, no, but um, <laughs> I suppose it's interesting what you say about working class history being mm. um, sidelined. Predominantly, I think probably because it's generally written by middle class people, mm. um, which I probably even include myself in, you know, I, my, my parents dragged themselves out of yeah. the working class, my dad certainly, but my, I had a middle class upbringing, I went to grammar school, you know, yeah. um, but I think that that's a, a product of trying to get working class people 
through universities. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Which, I mean, I worked for the University of Northampton, mm. and we very much have that. <coughs> but persuading my students to then go on to take, you know, to go on and do mm. PhDs and to go mm. on to, to be academic historians or or whatever, and to, to do history, we get a small amount of them because the pressure's on them. Mm. They don't have the money. Yeah. To, to, to do a master's, to do a PhD, it's just expensive. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, so it's about really changing society in a, in a really big way. Mm. Um, I haven't any answers to that, but I would mm. really want to work with, with people like yourself. Mm. I mean, there are people <coughs> who, are, who are telling this message. The other thing yeah. I get out of your talk, most importantly, is that ordinary people can change their circumstances yeah. um, by organising, and, and whether that's by organising in a conventional way with, with, with trade unions, or, you know, you just watch, I mean, I'm absolutely bowled over by the actions of the young people who have been, you know, have been inviting time yeah. and yeah. the Extension Rebellion people. I've met them all over mm. um, the country now, up in Edinburgh, <coughs> and um, they, are, they are using um, a, a, it's a different way. It's a mm. non-traditional way of doing it. In, yeah. in some respects, it is a traditional way. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah. And I got, and I kind of I hear the sneering, and I suppose the reality is we have to we have to take control of the media, which is take well take control of the narrative. Yeah. So one thing I would just say to the conference here is um, at Northampton, I'm very proud that several years ago Jerry Gable, Searchlight, mm. search donated his entire archive to the university. And we have a dedicated, I have a, I have a member of staff, one of my staff, who is dedicated to looking after that archive, Dan Jones. And um, if you are interested in doing anything on anti-fascism from there, from there to now, um, do come to Northampton, do get in touch with Dan on, on the search line on, on Twitter. And, and come and have a look at what we've got in terms of resources because there's a lot, mm. a lot there. That's really good to know. I will be in touch. I'm trying to persuade publishers at the minute that, that fascism's a thing and that anti fascism is interesting. It's, really, though, Louise? I'm sure about that? Didn't we sort it out in the 40s? Bless mm. their hearts. Yeah, um, Greta Thunberg, how she upsets the Toby Youngs of this nation. Isn't it amazing? And that's exactly, that's very match womany. The fact that she's this young girl. How dare she tell me that I'm a blah, 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 you know? <laughs> that my business should stop destroying the planet. My God, how dare she? The abuse that she's had, the sexual kind of, you know, horrible insults and slurs, it's just incredible. And it shows you exactly how the establishment felt about women like Branch and about the match women as well. Yeah, it's interesting that thing you say about traditional organising. One of the problems when I came to study this strike myself was that historians, social scientists kind of had an equation for what made a strike. So you had to have X plus Y over Z times 100, and that was a strike. Anything else that women did, like the statue, for example, I would say that was a protest. That was a really important form of protest. Even the way that they united to form their fellow clubs was a kind of protest. And these are the traditions that working class women had just in life. You had to, when you were starving and you had 10 kids, you wouldn't survive without your friends. So solidarity is just a fancy name for friendship, really. And of course they would take those traditions of, you know, oh, old Mrs. So-and-so's out of work. Go on, lad, take us some stew round and say we've made too much and just, just tell her that. Can she use it for us? That's a form of solidarity. Of course they would take it into the factories. Why on earth wouldn't they? But historians have been too quick to 
say, well, we only want this kind of really official sort of a strike recognised by union. That's the only thing that's industrial action. I think that's absolute nonsense because, and the matchwomen showed that. Solidarity, your sense of sort of class pride is something that it's not something you just do at work. It's with you all the time in everything that you do. And even in their later lives, the matchmen were still friends, by the way. I found some cases where I've got some amazing pictures, I think some of them in the book, of them going on what they called beanos, which meant an awful lot of drinking, massive piss up basically to South End. And so you've got pictures of them with those, you know, those seaside cutouts where you peep through and there's the fat lady absolutely brilliant but it was just lifelong friendship but with a political dimension because they understood this was their form of organizing this was their they were their own welfare state you know every street had a woman who was the midwife who was the undertaker really who was who would help you out if you were skint who would tell you which butchers might give you the bones that they had left at the end of the day so you could make soup they were their own welfare state they absolutely women absolutely kept these communities alive um Oh, when it comes to people doing PhDs, I never thought I would do a PhD. Neither did anyone else. I have to tell you, I still meet people today that go, oh my God, I remember you when you were working behind the bar. Are you really, someone told me you were a historian, but that can't be yes. It actually is true. It's astonishing to me as well. I took redundancy from the job and, and paid for it myself. We need to absolutely get more working class people and more black people as well. Black students, ethnic minority students. We absolutely have to persuade them that they can do these qualifications. If there's any way I can help with that, please, I would love to get involved. I think I'm a great example. Like, if I can do it, you can definitely do it. <laughs> I, I will take you up on please that. do. Yes, please do. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions? Oh, my God, loads, Steve. Um, I've got a vague memory, which you may be able to confirm or not, that okay. the, going back to Cable Street, the official left-wing parties, when that you're that worried, they were much more mm. concerned about a rally in support of Spain mm. until the ordinary East Enders said... Sod Spain, we're clearing up our own backyard. That's exactly right. And also, um, the Jewish community, the sort of elders of the Jewish community, were saying, don't be involved in it, stay indoors, don't be involved. And it was very much people on the ground. But from all over, people came from all over the country as well. I mean, there were Welsh miners there, there were Irish dockers there to support it. But yeah, it's absolutely an example of working class people go, no, you don't understand what's happening on our streets, and we do. Yes, it's ground up. And so many things are ground up, and we're never told that. We're still taught this David Starkey version, I'm so bitter, David Starkey <laughs> version of um, that's so top down, that it's only kings and queens and duchesses. Going back to my earlier stuff. period, whenever you read about the levellers, all you hear yep. about are the middle class ones, yep. it's not the ordinary trades. Exactly. It's in everything, every single bit of history, pretty much that I can think of, women are excluded, working class people are excluded. It's so deliberate as well. Because it's so empowering. I teach in schools sometimes, and I say teach, I talk at poor, unfortunate school children occasionally. And you can see them, the ones who are about the same age as the match women, starting to sit up a little bit taller when you say, well, people your age change the world. Girls your age change the world. It's so empowering. And in fact, psychologists have found that you can measure the improvement in girls' self-esteem if you give them good, positive role models, which they have so few of. And don't think that the upper classes don't know this. Of course they know this. Conservative administrations always close down kind of working lives, trading and studies type research programmes. They start defunding this because they know our history is so powerful and so empowering and they just don't want that. Just shut up and do kings and queens. <laughs> yeah, is there someone else? I just, um, we have a sort of like traditional view of... Um, 
working class East End women is being sort of somewhat subjugated yeah. and, um, you know, it's rife with domestic violence mm. and what have you. Um, and I was wondering what, what the actual working class male viewpoint was with regards mm. to the strike. You know, with, mm. Did they see it as a, a long game mm. for improvement of the entire, you know, sort of uh, population? Or do they see it as something of a being like domestic inconvenience? Yeah, yeah, probably a bit of both. We don't actually know, but not yet anyway. There may be accounts out there, but we do know they must have supported it. It would have been virtually impossible for those women to have gone on strike and to keep going if they hadn't had family support. Somebody was looking after the kids while they were marching yeah. to Parliament and holding mass meetings. And I have to um, say something in defence of men. God, write this down. <laughs> this is an amazing day. Um, there was some, yes, there was a lot of domestic violence in society, generally, of course, through all classes. We tend to think even now that it's something that happens in not very nice families, don't we? It's, a big word. it's everywhere. It will always be everywhere in all classes. And there was a lot of that because you get examples of women who would um, help their neighbours out. Oh, he's, he's come home, next door's come home drunk. That means he's going to beat up his wife and kids. Come on, girls, over the fence, and they'd hold the fence and they'd hide them. So, yes, that absolutely happened. But there were also men who were quite feministy, actually. I mean, the fact that the dockers said, East End dockers, Irish East End dockers, like Pretty Birch, she was not raging feminists, you wouldn't think exactly. But you read their accounts, they really go out of their way to say, it was the match girls. They showed us the way. They came and talked to us. They inspired us. We looked at their organising model, if you like. And um, there were incredible men. Adelaide Knight is a suffragette, an East End suffragette that I absolutely adore and write about a lot. And her husband, um, Adolphus Brown, changed his surname to hers in the 1890s, completely supported her, looked after the kids while she was in prison for the suffragetting. Absolutely amazing man. And um, she went to him when she was being threatened, being told to go to prison like Sylvia Pankhurst did. And her health, she was disabled, so her health was very frail. She had two young kids and she said, her daughter recorded this, she said, Daddy, she always called her husband Daddy, um, what are we going to do about the situation? I've been bound over to keep the peace. If I say I won't campaign anymore for a year, then they'll let me off. I won't go to prison and we've got young kids and you know you need me here. But then again, if they can intimidate me, they'll do this to all the girls. She's one of the first suffragettes to ever get arrested. And we can't give in to intimidation. And he said to her, Mama, we have always faced these challenges together. We will continue to do so. You do what you need to do and I'll look after the home and children. So amazing. These were people who fought side by side. So, yeah, we can only assume they must have supported and understood It'd be quite interesting to do some research with regards to that aspect. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, I really tried to find more accounts. I'm finding more accounts all the time, actually. People are coming forward and I'm finding more and more descendants. I'm looking for that diary somewhere, because some of them could read it, right? Somewhere in an attic, there is a matchwoman's or a docker's diary that's going to go, oh, yes, June 1988. Yes, they had a bit of a strike today. I will find it one day. But again, because of this idea that working class people weren't important to history they thought that too so they didn't write stuff down they didn't think they were important and they didn't have time yes we won a strike but we're not sort of doing laps of honor around the east end we're going back to bloody work and looking after the eight kids and doing the housework and white letting the front doorstep and sorting out the hats for the musical so they were incredibly busy and they didn't think their lives were worth recording you know i still talk to people now and say 
so fascinating. And they will say, oh, I just don't know why you'd be interested in me, doing. I don't know why you'd be interested in what I've got to say. So unfortunately, that idea that working class people aren't important just affects everything. But yeah, I'm still looking. Yes, I will one day. <laughs> Thank you. Really good question. Um, being an East End girl myself, yeah. um, obviously I've always known about the, the Match Girls, yeah. the Dockers, and then we had the Dagenham Girls mm. in the 60s. Absolutely. Um, which my aunt was also one of them. Really? But I was just wondering, from going up north with yeah. um, ladies' industries like lace makes, mm. was that ever striped there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I should have said that this pattern was absolutely repeated all over the country. This isn't just something that happens just in the match industry or just in London by any means. In fact, 100 years before the match women strike, mm. there was a huge strike in 1788 in Lancashire. Um, of a female union that was that was written about as extremely militant, which of course was terrible, horrifying. And women went on strike, it was their only weapon. They were often hungered back to work, starved back to work, or arrested. Their employers would get them arrested and sentenced to hard labour for going on strike. But they were very solid. Actually, women tend to be, um, sorry chats, but somewhat more solid in strikes. Um, they tend to stick by them really loyally. And you can read accounts from all around the country of what happened in these small communities if you tried to break a strike. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. People who crossed picket lines and broke women's strikes in particular tended to become a bit accident-prone very shortly afterwards. Um, people were dumped under water pumps. I guess they slipped. Um, and people were people fell <coughs> down wells. So really, you did not break a strike. And there are accounts of people saying, "Oh, these women are on strike, and it's terrible. Walk past them, and they're cheeky, and you know, they're sassy and pasty." So no, it's something that women. We only know back to 1788 because that's when the records began. I'm sure way before that. Women were involved in the guilds in the Middle Ages. Women were involved in just about every industry. There were medieval women on building sites. So I'm sure that it's the only thing you can do if you have no power is to go on strike. So yeah, it's absolutely a huge picture. And strikes never stop. There were indexes to strikes that the Times kept in this period. Even before the matchroom, there are strikes in every industry you can think of, just about every week. Hugely shoots up after the matchroom strike, but yeah, every industry. And of course, you could do secondary action then. Oh, I miss those days. Where you could come out and support another group of workers that were on strike. And the matchwomen did. They, they supported the docker strike. In fact, there's a lovely account of them described as being like a moving rainbow because they've all got these beautiful hats with feathers and they come forward in support of the dockers. So yes, it's absolutely tradition all around the country and other countries as well, globally. Gonna stop, we're gonna, are you going to stick around for, to talk to people? Absolutely. Because we're yes. running a bit short of time. We're going to have one more question. Which is this. Yeah, it's very interesting that the colleague from Northampton uh, talking about the archives of Searchlight. Mm. Um, Paul Jackson, obviously, is a colleague of yours yeah. who, who does some great work, um, very important work, really, around, around fascism uh, and a, a really, really interesting, um, enthralling talk, I thought. Um, people will know here, literally around here, only recently, where the group called the English Defence League mm. tried to march on Tower Hamlets, you know, like, like the Black Shirts did with a man of many names, one of the most popular names he has is Tommy Robinson. These people come again and again and again with mm. a world we live in where, you know, as somebody said, when yourself said Trump and Johnson, mm. I still might let's hope history judges them right. Mm. 
Um, but I think it, it, it's incredibly important. The 43 group I mentioned, the 62 group were important um, as well, come out of the 43 group who took on fascists. And I, I amongst others, was, was humbled and privileged to know Morris Beckman. Um, and I think the thing that struck me about Morris and the other founders of the 43 group, Jerry Flamberg, Lanny and people, they were all incredibly modest. They were incredibly modest people. Now, they come out of the war, um, 18, 19 year olds, they went into the war, World War II, lost a lot of friends in it, come out of it, and like you say, five years later, and Hackney, um, Bethnal Green and so on, Shoreditch, as, mm. as Morris described it, the bastards are back. Mm. Couldn't believe mm. it. Couldn't believe it. So you're right, history's a weapon. I just wonder if you see a, a, a thread going through, because it seems to me there's a bit of thread perhaps for the match skills, the doctors and so mm. on. Um, I remember some of the some of the best people about, uh, amongst uh, amongst the men uh, fighting alongside the men. Sometimes we did have to fight, you know, because you do have to fight sometimes. And we blocked the road to the EDL several times round here and Allgate, and they try and come through Allgate to Tower Ambulance Pump. Uh, proper, and you know, get sloshed out of hell in the bar, and <laughs> people might remember it. It's disgusting, yeah. right? But what, what stopped them, like, like the 43, and like the motor, like the you know, they're much smaller way, but like, like the Cable Street thing was masses and masses, and mainly local East End people mm. and South Essex people saying, We're not having it, we're not having you here. And there's that tradition. And I remember some of the best people was the Muslim girls in the Ejabs, they mm. tried to target, they did target. But they, do you think there's a thread mm. running through things like that? Absolutely. Um, right back, you can go back to the Peasants' Revolt really and draw a thread right through British history for people standing up for themselves and seeing what the threat is to themselves and their culture. But absolutely, as I said, fascists, herpes, you're never free of them. <laughs> always, always, always been there. We get them under control, we put the lid on them, but then someone lifts the bloody rock, I'm mixing my metaphors here, and out they come again. And of course... Brexit, not just Brexit, because it's happening globally, isn't it? It's all around the world we've got the far right in power. And the only way we can do it is with mass <coughs> mobilisation. There's an awful lot people can do on social media now, thank goodness. So, Because not everyone can turn up and sort of shout at Nazis on the streets. I like to. But not everybody can do that. So there's a lot of roles people can play on social media as well. And just challenging this awful narrative. Because if people don't see it challenged, and that's why we turn out in, on demonstrations, why we turn out in huge numbers consistently, it's to show Muslim people, Jewish people, who might feel, quite frankly, quite rightly afraid because of the narrative that they're hearing, because of people on their streets, that they're not alone. And people have always done that, and I think we're always going to have to do it. You're never going to replace that with Twitter. So, yeah, it's absolutely a thread goes right through it. And I was so glad to find out that match women were connected to opposing Mosley and were connected to their sons going off to the Spanish Civil War. I would have been amazed if it hadn't been the case because they knew what was up politically. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to have a, a small break before John takes over. Um, uh, thank you again to Dr. Louise Roth. Thank, thank you. you. And that was Dr. Louise Roth at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Dr. Roth, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org. 
where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.